when you fund an organization or you support an organization, TRCP, BTT, Captains for Clean Water, whatever it is, um, that's going to help drive their mission. And it's not, we're not taking that money and, and going in and putting it on a, you know, $2 billion contract uh, to, right. to build a reservoir. What it's doing is it's, it's driving that mission and it's, it's helping to scale the awareness and the volume. And to, to Chris's point, the collective voice of the, of the community and the population is extremely powerful. You have the, the, the polluters that we'll talk about or whatever. They are, they are there to those politicians with an army of lobbyists. And if you look at it as, okay, do we, do we just hire, does captains just hire a lobbyist to go combat that? Well, if you look just in Florida, the sugar industry is going around in Tallahassee with over 70 lobbyists. And we'd have, what, our, our one or two right. that we could afford versus the 70 who are going around doling out campaign checks. We're not going to be effective in that manner. But we can take that same amount of resource and support that we get from donors and use it to educate the public, create awareness, and then give them an outlet to make their voice heard. And that then becomes hundreds of thousands of people weighing in which then becomes more powerful than the 70-plus lobbyists and the yes. campaign finance donations. Yes. I'm Captain Chris Whitman. I'm Aaron Adams. I'm Chris Macaluso, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. All right, guys, thank you very much. I want to first start thanking everybody for being here. we got Chris Whitman, Aaron Adams, Chris Macaluso, and uh, we're sitting on the floor of ICAST 2021, which is pretty cool because we didn't have this last year. It is. This is a first. Yeah, yeah. And doing a podcast right on the floor. We're in the Waypoint booth, and uh, that's pretty cool. What I find the most interesting about sitting here talking to you guys uh, with the current situation in Tampa is that the people under this roof are not only probably some of the most affected, but also the people that can do the most to actually do something about what's going on. So I'd love to um, start with, with each of you and kind of find out, you know, Chris, a lot of people know we've had Captains for Clean Water on the podcast many times. A lot of people are familiar with Bonefish Tarpon Trust. People, Chris, might not be quite as familiar with uh, the Theodore Roosevelt uh, organization. So could you kind of tell us like what 
your organization does, what you do for the organization as we get started? Sure. So the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, uh, it, you know, has been around for a couple of decades now. In fact, we're going to be celebrating our 20th anniversary soon. Uh, and the unique thing about our organization is we are truly a partnership. You know, we partner with 60 various conservation organizations and, and hunting and fishing advocacy organizations, and everybody's heard of, of these organizations. The, the, the two guys sitting next to me are part of our partnership. Everybody's heard of CCA. They're part of our partnership. American Sport Fishing Association, who puts on this show, uh, Ducks Unlimited. Everybody knows our partners. You know, what the founders of our organization realized is that uh, collectively, uh, you know, hunting and fishing organizations and the businesses that support them and the businesses that depend on them make a difference if we can un unify our voices in, in making policy changes. And we also try as hard as we can, where we can, to work with the more environmental side of, of things. You know, that we, we don't see a reason why on a lot of issues why anglers and hunters ought to be in a different space than some of the environmental groups. Mm -hmm. And so the mission of our organization is to, uh, is to guarantee all Americans a quality place to hunt and fish. Uh, my focus is uh, I'm the director of the Center of Marine Fisheries. Uh, and so anything that deals with federal fisheries policies uh, and, and habitat restoration issues when it comes to marine fisheries uh, is what I deal with. So we do a lot of work with guys on, on the Everglades, we do a lot of policy-focused stuff in Washington, D.C. on getting appropriations, getting money sent down here to do Everglades work, uh, and getting legislation passed that's got good provisions in it for the Everglades. We do a lot of focus um, back in my home state in Louisiana on getting habitat restoration stuff done there. Uh, and then we, we focus on bigger things like the Magnuson-Stevens Act and, and you know, the, the fisheries legislation. So for somebody that doesn't know, what, what is that act? So the Magnuson-Stevens Act is, is the broad piece of federal legislation that, that, that governs all saltwater fisheries, basically, in federal waters. And that would include commercial and recreational fishing. You know, anytime you've got a, a bill that passes uh, that affects how fish are managed, uh, it, it has to amend that act. Okay. Uh, and this year, uh, we'll probably see uh, a, you know, a bill that, that attempts to reauthorize the Magnuson Act introduced in the House. Um, and, uh, you know, a big push right now in Congress is uh, this effort called 30 by 30 and a real focus on climate change. Hmm. 30 by 30 is, is, is a push by the current administration and some in Congress and some states uh, to protect 30 percent of our nation's lands and waters by 2030. Um, you know, we're working real hard with this administration and with the people who are writing these bills uh, to make sure that recreational access and quality habitat and things like that are included in those discussions. You know, we, we feel like, uh, you know, anglers and hunters uh, throughout our history have been, been the biggest drivers of conservation. Mm -hmm. We certainly contribute a lot of money to it. Uh, so we don't want to be shut out of the discussions. Right. We want to make sure we're at the, at the table uh, to help craft these policies. Okay, awesome. And Aaron, you're with Bonefish Tarpon Trust. And uh, so let kind of can you give us a... Uh, a brief overview of what you do for Bonefish Tarpon Trust and what Bonefish Tarpon Trust is, is currently doing? Sure. I'm a director of science and conservation for, for BTT. Um, I've been in that position for quite some time. Uh, essentially what BTT does is we identify the threats to bonefish tarpon permit, uh, snook as well, uh, to their habitats, and then assess the, uh, the a knowledge base about those from a conservation and biology perspective. 
and then we fund uh, research to fill those gaps and address the threats, and then take that information and put it specifically into uh, policy recommendations. Mm -hmm. So a recent uh, example of that is Western Dry Rock's uh, spawning season closure for permit. Uh, that was based on assessing uh, threats uh, from about 40% of the permit that were uh, released or caught and released, uh, catch and release fishery only there during the spawning season, were getting eaten by sharks, which wasn't sustainable. And so we did research to kind of figure out how, how that spot was connected to the flats fishery and found Western Dry Rocks is like the spawning spot for flats permit and worked with the state to get that spawning season closure. So BTT was founded by anglers and guides in 1998 uh, because they saw a decline in bonefish and tarpon at that time. And we all know how the bonefish population declined precipitously there for a while, starting to come back now. Um, and so it was very much a grassroots-driven and science-based approach, uh, with a difference, I think, from some other NGOs of uh, the science basically guides uh, our policy approach mm -hmm. and our advocacy. And so it's great working with uh, TRCP and, and captains because um, they fill different uh, aspects of that whole process from the bottom up of the science to actually applying that to, to policy. Um, and there's different challenges in all those different respects. But they also, also the um, a key to BTT success and captains as well is uh, working with the fishermen and the guides is a central component because uh, people who spend time on the water know a lot. They might not know some of the, the causes or interactions, um, but they help us identify, for example, fish movement corridors that help us uh, shorten the learning curve to mm -hmm. figure out spots to focus on to, uh, for conservation. And so you know, for us, uh, water quality and, and habitat in Florida are by far the top priority uh, threats and things that have to be addressed um, quickly uh, by policy changes. Okay. And Chris brings it brings it over to you. Obviously, Captains for Clean Water um, has done some amazing work um, this year. Tell me about what your agenda is this year, what you've been working on. And um, for anybody that, I don't know, about many people that are listening to this podcast that don't know much about Captains for Clean Water, but maybe, maybe a brief overview of, of Captains for Clean Water before we get into the regular discussion here. Yeah, so um, I'm one of the co-founders. Daniel Andrews and myself, uh, fishing guides in Southwest Florida, and had had done a lot of work actually with Bonefish Tarpon Trust and and Aaron um, as guides. And throughout our careers, we had recognized the, the decline in in our fishery through habitat loss, water quality, and then the impacts of those. And uh, ultimately, 2016, we kind of saw that. Um, things were not getting any better it was getting you know th that baseline was trending downward consistently and we wanted to figure out what we could do and, and we took a look at ourselves internally is is why why is a fishing guide of, of 20 years not really involved in trying to stop these issues from happening and we kind of realized that um you know i didn't people like us in our community didn't didn't really have the outlet or think that feel like we had a way that we could create meaningful impact right. and um aaron was actually the first person we called <laughs> and uh and, know, and you're calling like this is all happening in response to in response to, to how our water was managed in, right. a, in a crisis that was happening in southwest florida and and on the east coast right. uh, in 2016 and aaron being a scientist who we have a lot of respect for and um you know confidence and we we called him for advice and um 
yeah, I remember, you know, his statement was, if something doesn't happen or change drastically, you guys might as well look for a new line of work. And um, that was a that was a wake up call, you know. Yeah. And uh, I think from then we just saw that in order for us to affect change, there's this huge uh, industry. Everybody in this building <laughs> that we're in today, yeah. um, and their consumers that were relatively absent in in these water issues. And we looked at why was that? Why weren't we involved and 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 part of it was education on not not just the the scientific solutions to these problems but also education on how their voice could help move policy and and why their involvement was important and then creating an outlet to to do that to be a conduit um that was six years ago fast forward today and you know these two guys here with us we rely very heavily on uh, our scientific partners like BTT because we are an education and advocacy organization. We take what the scientists say and help to put that out to our community mm-hmm. um, in, in a way that I understand and then give them a path to take action. With TRCP, we rely on them heavily for our federal policy and with Everglades Restoration, that's a a 50-50 share between the state and the federal government. And so, you know, those guys are in D.C. And any time that we have, you know, owners or of, of companies or, or people here, you know, uh, brand partners that, that we want to take up and meet with congressional members about these issues, TRCP is the first people we call. Nice. And they help us facilitate those meetings. Uh, and I got I to gotta imagine that's one of the most intimidating and difficult things, especially as you were first starting in 2016, of navigating Washington, D.C. I mean, <laughs> I think it would be pretty easy to be like get pushed aside or not meet with the right person or meet with somebody that I, I don't know. It just seems like that would be, to me, that would be incredibly intimidating. It's critical that we have a partner like TRCP that has a lay of the land up there. Right. For sure. Um, when we started, we, we recognized that the mistakes that a lot of organizations had made was they identified that in Florida there's, you know, 20 different problems that are affecting our water quality, and they go and push for all 20 of those. And it's very hard to gain traction and focus when there's all these different topics flying around. So what we looked at was Everglades Restoration has huge uh, benefit for a great amount of people. The East Coast that suffers with discharges to the St. Lucie River, the West Coast, the same thing. No lack of fresh water that goes down to the Southern Everglades mm-hmm. uh, benefits Florida Bay, the Everglades, and also the drinking water supply for over 8 million people. Um, th- there's this huge opportunity, and there's already a plan in place that was that came from scientists, but they're just it wasn't moving fast enough because there wasn't political will. And there wasn't political will because the public and the industry that is affected wasn't engaged in driving it. And so when we started, we really looked at Everglades Restoration being 68 projects and being the largest project of its, uh, of its kind in the world. And we looked at, okay, we can't attack this and, and push for all 68. What's that focus? We identified an inf- it, the, the first part was infrastructure, and that Senate Bill 10 EAA Reservoir. And that was our focus, 16, 17, 18. Today, that reservoir on uh, the filter marsh component of it is, is under construction. And now we've shifted a lot of our focus to the operations. So we started with infrastructure, 
Now it's the operations or the management of the water through the infrastructure. And that brings us to, to LOSOM or the Lake Okeechobee System Operating Manual. And, and that's basically the plan that the Army Corps will use on how they manage water through the dry season and wet season. And that's going to dictate how our water is managed for the next decade or more. Yeah. So that's huge. Super important, right? It and is. And that was a big initiative just a couple of days ago. There was a, an email that went out, which this is one of the things that I really like about what you're doing is that you're making it super easy for somebody to actually take action. It's one thing to say, write your congressman and here's an address and you're going to it's going to you're going to lose them, right? Yeah. But you click the button, it literally took 30 seconds, three emails are sent out, you get a response. Your email's been sent to this person. Um, that was super cool. Like and and that's going to really make a difference because that's probably going to have what 10 times more emails are going to go than might have happened if you um, just gave somebody an address or told somebody to write their congressman. I mean, that's, yeah. that's great, but it's not going to happen. No, and the, the tools that we have at our disposal today with technology, with email and social media, we can drive information much more efficiently and effectively than you could 10 or 15 years ago. And you do have to make it simple. I measure everything by how likely would I be to do this. Right, right, right. You yeah, know, sure. I mean, it's it's not that it's lazy. It's just that you've got all this other stuff going on well, in your life. You might be driving, and it's like, okay, remember to write my congressman when you get home. And, you know, the chances of that happening are almost almost zero, honestly. I mean, if we want to be if we want to be honest about it, it's like all of us have thought, man, I should really take action on that. And then you get home, you got to take the garbage out, and the next thing you got to do, you know, there's a there's wrestling practice, and you got to go do something else. And the next exactly. thing you know, it's two weeks later, you're like, oh, man, never wrote my congressman about that really super important issue that, that is that that dictates my financial future and the, <laughs> the the financial future of the whole industry I work in. That seems to be pretty important. You would have thought I would remember to do that. Yeah. But you just don't. No. Um, one thing that I want to go on before we before we move on is that the the construction of the EAA reservoir. Like maybe Chris, you would be the person to to answer this. How do we know what's going on there? Like you say, it's under construction. And that's a big win, and we're doing great. But how do how does anybody actually know who's monitoring the the progress of that? Is it one thing to just break ground and be like, ah, we made those people happy, and we're gonna move, we're gonna have one bulldozer out there for 12 years? I don't know. I, right. I, I don't know. So, what do you think, Chris? How do you, how do we know that there's actual progress going on there? Well, you know, it's a complicated process. Anytime you're dealing with the federal government, the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, building a project of that scale, uh, you know, there's a lot of environmental checklists you have to go through. There's, there's a lot of policy issues you have to deal with. But, you know, those agencies are going to want to take credit for the work that they're doing. Uh, and I think as long as the money continues to be appropriated to get the project moving, and I think the appropriate amount of money is in, in, you know, is in the door now to get that project under construction, um, it's going to take a while. You know, any, any large-scale project like that takes a while to build. Uh, but, uh, but the Corps of Engineers in the state of Florida, I would expect, would be pretty transparent about progress on that. Like, I would think that they would put out a lot of press releases. They would have updates on their website. They'd have a plan of action moving forward. That's generally what we see out of those agencies, you know, when they undertake a project of that size. Um, you know, they're going to want to take credit for it, even though it took a long time to, to get them motivated to get it built. Yeah. Now that they're moving, they're, they're going to want people to know about it. Yeah, yeah, well, I hope so, and I hope they have motivation to finish it rather than, you know, just motivation to get it started. And, and I, I don't know. You see, 
you see things sometimes get started and it takes forever to, and it's like, are the right resources being put towards getting this done and completed in, in the amount of time that's really necessary to yeah. make a big difference? And that was one of the things that I, I thought about. I mean, honestly, I was kind of like, well, that's awesome that it's happening, but how do we how do we speed up the process or how do we make sure that the appropriate amount of resources are being put to that so that, I mean, do these, just, I mean, it, just because it's been started doesn't mean that it's super high on the priority list. And that was my, right. I, I just don't know how and you would even check in on that. So that's that's one of the important parts of, of organizations Right. is we do keep our finger on the pulse of, of right. the progress of how these things are happening. We started with our sole focus being to drive progress on the infrastructure. Now we are focusing a lot on the operations, but that doesn't mean the infrastructure part's out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. It's you're, you're watching that, making sure that it doesn't derail or slow down. The limiting factor for those projects historically has been funding. No doubt. And we know um, that over the last couple of years with our partners, uh, the, the, the outdoor community has been pushing for historic funding and and really going to the army corps of engineers and saying in a perfect world what do you need resource wise to execute on everything that's on the ids the integrated delivery schedule those authorized projects after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers if we've learned anything it's that there's always a catch so when i heard that mint mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. And they came to us and said, look, this is the amount of money we would need. Collectively, um, our organizations sent uh, letters to, to the new administration and said, look, we want to fully fund Everglades Restoration, nice. every authorized project. And so th that's how we do that. Um, I'm out there physically on the ground at that site, at the construction site, a couple times a year. Hmm. Um, I've been out there probably half a dozen times already, and and it's impressive. I mean, it's a it's a massive area, um, but but it is important. We've seen things start, and and part of that also is is keeping the public engagement up enough to where we don't see funds get appropriated and then get allocated towards something else, right. And, right. and making sure that that. The, the legwork's there. Aaron and I were talking about this just before. Is making sure that the money goes where it's intended to go. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, that's kind of the purpose of the question is that it seems like it would be pretty easy to be like, oh, yeah, that's happening, and then you never know. Right. I mean, you never know. And that is why just the individual citizen, maybe with websites and stuff like that today, you might be able to get those kind of updates. But not, it wasn't very long ago no. that that money could easily be diverted somewhere else without anyone's knowledge, and totally you, know, you just don't know. So it's super good to hear for me to hear that there's more than one finger on the pulse after something like that happens. Yeah. Did you have something you wanted to? Well, add? and what I wanted to add is is you know Chris hit the nail on the Peter. head when it comes to funding because you know we we've had a lot of great ideas when it comes to habitat restoration in this country, 
uh, you know, back home in Louisiana where I'm from, you know, we've got a massive habitat loss issue that's taking place in the yeah. Mississippi River Delta. And, and for a while, you'd get $50 million here, $50 million there, and you could put a Band-Aid on something. And then, you know, unfortunately, it took a massive oil spill for this huge influx of money to come in. But we went from building 50-acre projects to building 500- to 800-acre projects to, like, taking a piecemeal approach to restoring a barrier island, for instance, and being able to do the whole project in one shot. And so getting that consistent level of funding that we keep fighting for at the D.C. level is what's going to be critical to making sure that those projects get all the way to completion. Yeah, so, you know, people, me, myself included, let's just, let's just uh, say that funding, that money, that's, some of that's government money, and then some people are like, oh, I give to Captains for Clean Water, I give to Bonefish Tarpon Trust. So the money that you're talking about that was required to, to uh, actually complete this reservoir or a barrier island or anything like that, that is money that's going to come from the government in some place, and sure. you're going to lobby from that for that money. Is there, a, is there a, an area uh, of the government budget that that might come out of, like that you're really that you know, oh, the money's there, and we can get it, but we have to lobby for it. And do you, you know what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, it, 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 it's simply yes. I mean, you, you know, the, the, it, it seems infinite, but the federal budget is, is finite. Sure. I mean, there's uh, a lot of things yeah. we need to do in this country. Right. And, and, and you do have to go up there and continue to make your case sound better than other places where they could spend the money. Right. Uh, and, and I think it's unfortunate generally – the reason that happens, the reason you see an increase in appropriations is because something really bad happens, right? Yeah. Yes. In the case of South Florida, it was all the, uh, the, uh, the cyanobacteria, it was all the blue-green algae, it was all that incredibly nasty discharge that was coming out of Lake Okeechobee, and it was affecting people economically. It was affecting people financially uh, here. You know, in Louisiana, for instance, it was the oil spill. You know, and, and, and but we actually we had to go to Congress and to the administration and get a piece of legislation passed that took that money from the nexus of the injury and put it back where that injury was. Mm -hmm. uh, it's unfortunate that it takes really bad things to get yeah. politicians motivated, but that's right. You have to capitalize. But on in the it. in the sense of the, of the oil spill, you're also getting BP money coming right. in, right? So, right. I mean, it's not solely funded from the government. But one of the things well, that... Well, before you move on with that, um, there's a similar situation in South Florida. It wasn't that long ago that there was a referendum to the voters, and mm -hmm. it passed overwhelmingly, where um, costs for water quality declines um, coming from, say, agriculture and industry would be at least partially paid by the, the offenders. Mm. And at some point in the political backroom deals, uh, that hasn't happened. Hmm. So a large portion, a significant portion of money that should be going uh, to Everglades Restoration and the discharges to St. Lucie and Clusahatchee should be coming from the sugar industry. Right. I mean, that's, people can, who are watching, listening, can look that up. And that's in, in the recent past. So we did have that system in Florida that the voters voted for. And it, with some dealings in Tallahassee, it's no longer there. But this, it's on the books. Hmm. And, and other states have done the same thing. The federal government has done the same thing. So it's, it's the question about where the money comes from is somewhat complicated um, because it's been uh, politicized. But there are avenues for it to come from the offenders. Um, 
there are avenues for it to come from a portion of the state budget. Uh, again, not long ago, it was Amendment 2 at the time, I want to say 2017, 18, uh, where voters voted overwhelmingly to put portion of the mill taxes into uh, land acquisition for conservation. And uh, Tallahassee um, took that money away as well. And at this point, that would be in the billions. And that would, going back to Everglades Restoration, help to purchase some of the land that they can't really use because it's, they haven't been able to purchase it. Right. Um, and then on top of that are the uh, federal and state uh, dollars that um, Chris was talking about that we you know, should be able to access. Um, so I don't think we can let uh, some of the current players off the hook in that regard. Yeah. Um, because there, is, there has been that structure to do it. It just hasn't been implemented. Hmm. I would imagine it could be retroactively implemented yeah. if there was the will for it. Yeah, do you, I mean, I don't know what would have to happen for that. I guess there would be another another vote or something to, to retroactively bring Well, that. I mean, it's, I think it's interesting, and, and Chris has already brought this up, that a lot of this is happens when um, people get uh, um, shocked enough right. um, to see that, oh, my God, there's a problem, we have to fix it. <sighs> and it's that same... Um, type of uh, grassroots concern that has to push the politicians and policymakers um, to, to actually enact these things. Right. It's, it's, the science helps him, and we still need to do more science, but the causes of the problems and the solutions to them don't need the science. Right. That's a 100% political issue. And, and those who are implementing those policies, regulations, and everything, um, we elect a lot of those people. So a lot depends on how much of a priority we think it is. I mean, the ones sitting here obviously yeah. think it's high. But part of our job is to convince others, whether they're fishermen or not, that it's an important issue to them as well. And that's right. where guys like Chris's organization come in, are, are, are so sure. important. You know, because I can promise you the guys who don't want to pay for that cleanup and don't want to pay those fines, they're talking to the politicians every day. Yeah. And... Uh, with a you lot know, more leverage right. than, than you and, and I have. And well, not you and I, but the people well, under this roof. That but, but what but we you, have, yeah. what we have as anglers, uh, especially in the state of Florida, mm-hmm. we have a collective might. Like, you know, uh, anglers and hunters don't realize there's enough of us to affect the vote. There yeah. are enough of us to affect who gets elected in, in, in a lot of places in this country. And, and that's why... You know, uh, you have to celebrate victories when you when you accomplish something good, like getting construction on that EAA reservoir. Like that's a big thing that we have to celebrate. Sure, it, it gets people motivated. It makes them feel like they're making a difference. But you you got to give people hope to stay involved. You can't just throw your hands up yeah. and say it's Washington. I can't make a difference. It's well, Tallahassee. I can't make a you difference. Know, you can make a difference. Honestly, that's one of the reasons why I want to go over some of these basic things of where where the money come from. When someone gives money to your organization or BTT or Captives for Clean Water, like you got a 15 year old kid that sees dead fish all over the beach and he's like, "Man, I'm giving my hundred bucks to yeah. to try to help this." Well, I think it's really super important for him to know where that $100 goes. Like, if he gives $100 to Captains for Clean Water, that's not going to fix the problem. That's going to help us have organizations like all three of you sitting here lobby to get the real money to fix the problem and put the real resources on it, right? I mean, maybe you can yeah. explain that so, in, a different, in a better way than I can. No, yeah, de- definitely. So w- when you fund 
an organization, or you support an organization, TRCP, BTT, Captains for Clean Water, whatever it is, um, that's going to help drive their mission. And it's not, we're not taking that money and, and going in and putting it on a, you know, $2 billion contract uh, to, right. to build a reservoir. What it's doing is it's, it's driving that mission and it's, it's helping to scale the awareness and the volume. And to, to Chris's point, the collective voice of the, of the community and the population is extremely powerful. You have the, the, the polluters that we'll talk about or whatever. They are, they are there to those politicians with an army of lobbyists. And if you look at it as, okay, do we, do we just hire, does captains just hire a lobbyist to go combat that? Well, if you look just in Florida, the sugar industry is going around in Tallahassee with over 70 lobbyists. And we'd have, what, our, our one or two right. that we could afford versus the 70 who are going around doling out campaign checks. We're not going to be effective in that manner. But we can take that same amount of resource and support that we get from donors and use it to educate the public, create awareness, and then give them an outlet to make their voice heard. And that then becomes hundreds of thousands of people weighing in, which then becomes more powerful than the 70-plus lobbyists and the yes. campaign finance donations. Yes. See, I think, that's, I think that's super important. And you did that beautifully and concisely and nicely. And I just think it's really super important for people to understand why they need to give money to conservation organizations and which one. Why pick the one that that is in your wheelhouse? Whatever you like to do, whether you're whether you're out in Montana, whether you're in Florida, whether you're somewhere, you're going to have an issue that is super important to you and your recreation and maybe your livelihood and maybe the future of things that you want to do with your grandchildren. Find that organization that helps and make sure that they are being effective with the money. And get involved because that's that's the biggest thing. Because anglers, you know, in particular, hunters and fishermen, you know, at one point we put a self-imposed tax on all of our equipment, which, I mean, I, I would even be, the, the water situation in Florida is so bad right now, I would even say that I would vote for that. Like, I would put another tax on top of what's already there. I'd pay more for my fishing and hunting equipment if I knew that's where the money was going. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know. I mean, but that is a big thing that a lot of people that aren't hunters and fishermen don't realize that hunters and fishermen put their money where their mouth is. Yeah. They actually, on everything that they pay, knowingly or unknowingly, they are contributing back to a lot of things, whether that's law enforcement on the water, boat ramps, uh, habitat. All of that is, some of that money is coming from your own pocket when you buy the products that are under this roof, whether, whether the company even is for that cause or not but that's super important and then what it all comes really down to is that our vote is more important and more powerful than 70 lobbyists that but but i don't know you just you just explain you, you that really to, really well and you have to that's the value of and, and importance of being involved you know if you look at it from a funding standpoint the government takes in money through through taxes through avalorum taxes through stamp taxes on real estate through taxes on, on goods, you know, in the, in the outdoor industry, um, licensing. But it's critical that the, the public, the stakeholders that are affected by these issues, are vocal in how they want to see that money spent. Mm -hmm. What is important to them? What should the government be focusing this money on? 
Um, there's a lot of buckets that money comes from. If you're looking at infrastructure, water infrastructure projects on a federal level come through uh, what's known as, as the, the WARDA bill or the Water Resources Development Act. All the water infrastructure, all the infrastructure projects in the, in the country go into that bucket. And it's up to us as, out, as the outdoor community to say, hey, the Everglades is a national treasure. It's an iconic fishery. It's one of the most uh, important nursery habitats for tarpon, and juvenile snook, and, and bonefish in the world. It's a massive carbon sink when it's hydrated. And, it's, and, and we, need to, we want to see our tax dollars spent there mm-hmm. to fix this problem to so save So what's this the best place. way for somebody to, tell, to say exactly that? The best way is, is to, to join organizations like the ones that we have on here today. Um, you know, you, you, that you can do that through memberships, uh, annual membership. You can do it through just simply signing up for our email newsletter that doesn't cost a dime so that you can be uh, educated. You ask, you know, to, to where, how do, how do we make sure that we can keep up to date on what's happening mm-hmm. with that support? And, that, and that's how. Sign up for a newsletter. And, and that way, not only can we keep people up to date, but we can also call them to action when there is a need. Mm-hmm. Hey, yeah. your voice is needed right now. Mm-hmm. Here's an easy way to do it. Well, and that's what just happened. So that brings us to the Lowsome uh, situation, uh, which is uh, interesting. And I'd love to love for you to kind of bring us up to date there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So LOSOM is an acronym for Lake Okeechobee System Operating Manual. Uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, the Army, are the ones who operate the water system in Florida. Okay? They work with the various uh, water management districts, and they have a, a kind of a war book, they call it, and, and it's a plan that has kind of bands, operational bands, of water levels in, in the target, in this case Lake Okeechobee, which affects the East Coast, uh, the St. Lucie River, connected estuaries there, the West Coast, the Caloosahatchee River, and the connected estuaries there, as well as, as well as the lake itself and everything south, so the Central Everglades, Miami-Dade, Florida, ultimately Florida Bay. And that plan um, kind of gives them guardrails on the top end as far as high-level water and on the low end as far as low-level water, and it gives them these parameters and measurements like above sea level from dry season through wet season. So here's our targets, and we want to fall within that. Mm-hmm. Currently, they're operating off of a plan that was drafted in 2008 known as LORS or LORS 08. That plan, um, it kind of picks winners and losers. And for the past decade or more, the estuaries have been the losers. Wow. And industrial water supply for agriculture in the EAA has been the drastic winner. Um, we've seen the consequences. It's a massive imbalance. And so right now, that process to redo that plan is a critical one. It's not going to solve all of our problems, but it has a major measurable impact. And it's it's critical that we have a positive outcome come out of that plan. So over the past, what, year and a half or so, um, that low-sum plan has been, been going through the paces. And the Army Corps run over 130,000 models of, of if we operated the system this way, what does it do? They narrowed that down to five different possible plans. Um, when, when those were presented recently, uh, all of a sudden we kind of were like, oh crap, um, <laughs> four of these plans 
are going to be worse than what we're dealing with now. Wow. And um, we we had to we had to be strategic because one of them would really benefit the East Coast, but it was catastrophe for the West Coast. One of them would really benefit the West Coast, but catastrophe for the East Coast or the Everglades. So what we did was we we immediately figured out we need to get the East Coast, the West Coast, and the southern part of the state all together pushing for a plan that would benefit everyone. And uh, we did that. We met with a lot of our science partners and a lot of our our, uh, NGO partners and and came up with, okay, of these five plans, Plan CC, as it's titled, is, is not perfect as it is written, but it's the best starting point. And so we need to all advocate for Plan CC together and then get that adopted as a starting point and optimize that plan Mm. to have the greatest reduction in harm across the system, send as much water south as we can with the current infrastructure during the dry season to the Everglades when it's needed. And uh, we did that. We, We recognize this as a critical thing. We called on our industry partners. We called on our supporters through a call to action that said, hey, let the Army Corps know that this is the plan we want them to start at. Um, We had a roundtable we put together with Governor DeSantis. After that roundtable, the governor sent a letter to the Army Corps. We then uh, called upon our industry supporters and brands that that we work with and partner organizations. We collectively sent a second letter to the Army Corps saying, this is how we want to see this managed. And then then we worked with uh, smaller local regional businesses in 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 the tourism industry and chambers of commerce and real estate folks to, to, to kind of back that up as a, as a third thing. And, and on Monday, the Army Corps announced that they're going with Plan CC. Nice. So um, we're, not, we're not out of the woods. It's a huge win, but CC as it's drafted right now is, is not great for the Caloosahatchee. We have some, some, some uh, suggestions and how they can adjust the bottom end of that that will drastically help the Caloosahatchee, drastically help the St. Lucie, and drastically help the Everglades in I mean, the southern that, part that, of the system. That sounds that sounds just like what we need. <laughs> yeah. That sounds that sounds good. I don't know how in the world you could have a uh, all those people working on a plan that would be disastrous for one area and and even propose that as well. Special I mean, did they interests just not have see influence it as disastrous for that area or what? I mean, I'm, I'm that's, that's what's been well going aware on. of the special interest groups. That's yeah. what's been going on for for decades. Yeah, is it's been a, a poorly managed system. To the benefit of, of one or two mm. uh, entities, yeah, and and so the what has changed that is the uh, other user groups getting involved, mm-hmm. like uh, the that fishing community, and um, to the earlier point, uh, people members of that community don't realize the influence that they have. I um, mean, just think about Ducks Unlimited, right? If it weren't for Ducks Unlimited, guys wanting to be able to continue to hunt for ducks most of the U.S. wetlands would be gone. Mm-hmm. Um, for some reason, fishermen, especially those in the salt water, um, don't make that connection. They're starting to, but unfortunately, uh, they, it often brings some kind of catastrophe to do that. So the, the mismanagement of the water flows and dumping of, of Lake Okeechobee water into the Caloosahatchee <coughs> St. Lucie has been going on for decades. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until finally in 2016 where it was so bad um, that finally that was, you know, the final straw on the camel's back. Yeah. So the, the system is, is broken kind of at its core. 
And so I think Chris is exactly right. CC is the best alternative, and it's a fantastic start. But I think the key word there is it's a victory, but it's a start because it needs to help to change. We basically have to change the way the system is managed, period. So as an example, even though CC is fantastic, the amount of, of water storage that's proposed so that the water, is, you want to store it so that you can get rid of the nutrients because mm -hmm. there's way too many nutrients and we'll get to that in a bit. Um, even what's proposed with CC, which is for the next 10 years, is only around 20, 25% of what's really needed. Mm -hmm. um, as just one example. The other thing is it's all about um, water flow. So they call it a water budget. So if they want X number of, uh, of gallons to go down the Caloosahatchee, um, they think about it maybe seasonally because we're forcing them to, but more like, okay, in 2016, we want this many gallons. From a, as you know, as an angler, the, where the water comes in, when it comes in, how fast it comes in is everything for the fishery because of the ecology. So we need to force that on them as well, and that's getting better. But one of the biggest issues is they are not incorporating or integrating uh, reduction of nutrients in the water as part of the water um, management budget. So we'll send X gallons here and X gallons here, and if they go into the reservoirs and the filter marshes, it helps get out the nutrients, but that's almost a byproduct of getting rid of the nutrients. And so we have kind of two levels of problem here. From a, a, a fish and other organism perspective, it's just water. Changes in freshwater flows into estuaries are a huge influence. So even if the water coming out of Lake O was pristine, best water in the world, if you went from full ocean conditions in the Caloosahatchee to full freshwater conditions in the Caloosahatchee, as happens now, you're going to kill everything. Mm -hmm. Like if mm -hmm. oysters are exposed to fresh water for more than a couple of weeks, same with seagrass, it's dead. And a lot of the fish that live in there, same type of thing. Tarpon and snook are unusual and they can kind of move around, mm -hmm. but what they feed on can't. So the water budget fixes that, and that's like an immediate issue. But then the nutrients become what, uh, what we call legacy issue. You put those nutrients into the system now, and even though you might have a, a plankton bloom um, or an algae bloom, uh, those nutrients don't go away. They'll be in the system for years. So just to give you a kind of an idea of what that time frame is, when Hurricane Charlie came through uh, Charlotte Harbor in 2005, the upper portion of the harbor, the mangroves were completely defoliated, just sticks. Working with a colleague who does this kind of work, um, she said that the amount of extra nutrients from all those leaves decaying in the water because of Charlotte Harbor's um, uh, relatively low tidal range, mm -hmm. it would take the system about 10 years to cycle those nutrients out. Wow. So if you consider how high the nutrient load is in water coming down the Caloosahatchee or the St. Lucie from Lake Okeechobee, it, even if we stopped all nutrients today, we're talking years before they get cycled out of the system, and that's not yet being addressed. Uh, and, and I think this <coughs> speaks to a, a, a bigger cultural uh, issue within uh, within the Department of the Defense, you know, which manages the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, you know, they'll tell you that, that they have three primary focuses when it comes to, to, to managing water. Uh, flood control, navigation, and, and ecosystem, right? 
If, if, if I were to break it down, and my analysis of this over the last 20-plus years of working on this stuff is it's about 98% flood control, about 2% navigation, and somewhere in there every once in a while they, they talk about the ecosystem. Mm. They just don't deal with it very well. Um, and it's not just in, 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 in the Everglades. It's everywhere. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's an endemic problem that's all over this country and how the Corps of Engineers uh, is motivated and, and you know, dictated to by Congress on how to do their jobs. And so that's another area in which uh, it takes a lot of pushing. And it's one of those things that's never going to go away. Uh, and, and I like to look at it, you know, I've described it before as, you know, they're the Army uh, and they want to win. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you're when you're the army, you want to figure out how to win the battle. Um, you know, they're trying to win the battle against water when most of the time the best way is not to try to win the battle is try to figure out how we live with it better. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in the case of the Everglades, it's let's move as much of that water south so we don't have to move so much of it east and west where we're artificially inundating these these estuaries with water that's not supposed to be there if you were to move it through that wetland system if you were to have better natural infrastructure to handle that water you could take a lot of those nutrients out store them in those wetlands and have the water that you need to keep florida bay healthy Um, it, it, it just takes an enormous amount of constant effort with the army corps in particular uh, to get them to understand how to better handle the water. Yeah. And, and something you bring up there is it's constant, and, and it is never going to go away. A, a good example, when we first started working on this stuff just a few years ago, we're not that old of an organization, we were working with a colonel at the Corps. We then ended up having a, a new colonel come in, Colonel Kelly, the, the current colonel who's in charge of Everglades Restoration, well, he's now leaving this year, and we'll have another colonel. Mm-hmm. So just in the short existence of Captains for Clean Water, this will be three different colonels that we will have had to have worked with to bring up to speed on why what his job is is important and, and how that impacts well, us. Well, the current situation in Tampa Bay has got to have his interest right now. And uh, so I definitely want to talk about that yeah. uh, as well. So I appreciate so, you know, Aaron, Aaron brought up part of this issue is conveyance, where the water goes and when it goes yes. there. The other part's nutrient load. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the legacy problem. That's the problem that lasts a long time. Um, right now, what we're seeing in Tampa Bay is an example of that. It's, mm-hmm. it's too many nutrients coming from the landscape, interacting with Karenia brevis, red tide, and, and fueling that bloom to unnatural proportions and for unnatural durations. It's no different than what we saw in 2018 in Southwest Florida where I live. That was way too much nutrient coming from Lake Okeechobee discharges, coming in contact with red tide blooms. It's like, it's like a wildfire. A wildfire from a lightning strike is, is a natural occurrence. Right. It's not natural if you're flowing gasoline into that wildfire. Exactly. Yeah. And um, and that's what we're doing. We have we have way too many nutrients in in historically, not just here in Florida but around the country. The biggest polluters are the biggest political contributors. Yeah. And it's not that they're breaking the laws. It's that you're getting the laws drafted to yeah, their benefit. Right. And so, what we need to do is recognize that in order to fix an issue like we have in Tampa Bay. We have to look proactively. We can't look at 
is there, you know, we need funding to go up and scoop up the dead fish. Or, you know, we need some gizmo or gadget that can, that can you know, knock down the red tide. We need to stop the fuel in the first place. We need to address the pollution. We need to address those nutrients. And they're nutrients. It's, it's, base, it's, it's nitrogen and phosphorus, which are the components in, in fertilizer. But they're coming from industrial agriculture. They're coming from development. They're coming from failing sewage infrastructure, uh, su- uh, septic tanks. They're coming from all these different sources. Uh, but what we need is to recognize that, that Tampa Bay is just an example of uh, the symptoms that are plaguing the state and that are really plaguing the country um, and, and use that example as a catalyst to drive meaningful water quality policy. And, and that, that happens at a state level in Florida. So, so when it comes to water quality, um, that's the responsibility of the state. And, and I think that's, for us, that's the big focus now is we need policymakers to put in meaningful legislation listen to the scientists on the blue green algae task force that say this is what needs to be done to fix these problems and genuinely implement those solutions in policy in law to hold polluters accountable so that we can can stop these things before they start yeah i'm not sure where i just heard this i was listening to some podcast or something and they were talking about some country it was proposed one time that if you if you if the if a polluter polluted a river or whatever, that they had to now get their water from downstream, right? So they were like, "This is I don't know if it ever happened or whatever, but or, or maybe it was just a story." But you start thinking about that, and it's like, if you pollute here, and now you you are the first person to get water here, boy, how does that change things, right? Like that, and but that's how we all kind of. <clears throat> really need to think about it because there are giant polluters and there are things that are that are so big like the sugar industry or whatever that's a big big enemy but it is super important and one thing that i've kind of uh learned a lot from from you guys and and talking to benny and different people is that that each individual definitely has a responsibility in this as well. What you put on your lawn, what you wash your car with, what goes down the drain, all of that stuff. Whether or not you you cut your mangroves down in front so that you can see the you know that you have the beautiful view. I mean, you bought this house and there's a beautiful view there, but are you going to trim the mangroves and does that kill them? I mean, we all have some some personal responsibility too. I'd like to I'd like to just hear you guys weigh in on what someone's personal responsibility might be and how big of an impact that could be if i mean just take all the fishermen and just just say okay just be aware of these things try not to use these type of products and how big of an impact might that have uh in the long term well i think it's it's multi-level and i'm glad chris brought up the you know the many causes of too many nutrients Mm -hmm. because that is personal and it's also bigger scale sure so for example, a lot of uh, sewage treatment plants in Florida were built in the 60s and haven't been upgraded since, and they're constantly failing. So they need to be rebuilt. A lot of septic systems, it, depending on where you are, they might work. A lot of places, like if you have a house on a canal in, in Port Charlotte, you shouldn't have a septic system. We're in sandy, limestone, they, they don't work well. Um, we also have issues with uh, how we uh, 
treat our sewage. A lot of times they take the effluent and they put it into, inject it in, in wells. Mm. And if those wells don't go deep enough, those nutrients, it comes right back up to the surface. There's a lot of data showing that. So on the one hand, those are all individual behaviors or if you fertilize your lawn. On the other hand, those are also policies that are enabled by us not holding our representatives accountable. And that's not sexy at all. Mm -hmm. It's not like going to a rally and holding up a sign. But until the people making those policies are held accountable for enabling policies that continue this, then we as citizens, as fishermen, aren't doing our job. You could go to any estuary in the state, Indian River Lagoon, Florida Bay, Biscayne Bay, Charlotte Harbor, Tampa Bay, even all the way up in the Panhandle. Uh, every single estuary in Florida is in trouble. Tampa is the issue right now because it's horrific what's happening there. This happened uh, in 2018, as Chris said, in Charlotte Harbor. Um, in Indian River Lagoon, it seems like every other year they have massive algae blooms. And Indian River Lagoon is where I fish now. Uh, I can pull my skiff across flats for eight miles and not see a grade of sea seagrass. Whoa. Right? The seagrass is gone. That's actually now happening in Charlotte Harbor. Yep. They're not getting uh, algae blooms in the water like plankton blooms. They're having algae on the bottom, which has smothered the seagrass. Mm -hmm. And I was there fishing with our friend uh, Josh Greer back in February, and we pulled areas that when I lived there, I would pull all the time. We pulled eight miles. No, six miles, I'm sorry, and did not see seagrass. It was all algae. Are there any fish? There are some, but not like they, they used to be. Yeah. So the point is that there's a lot of different sources of the nutrients, and we as Florida residents are part of that process. And even though, you know, thinking about, oh, my God, a sewage treatment plant, that's going to cost a billion dollars to rebuild. Yeah, it is, but we're the ones that are depending on that sewage treatment plant. So if we want to think long term, in 10 years from now, do you still want to be able to fish in Florida and have a good chance of catching a fish? That's what we have to fix. Uh, no fertilizer on your lawn? Fantastic. Um, driving less? Fantastic. Not using plastic? Fantastic. But those are small increments. Mm -hmm. We're past the point of incrementalism. Um, we have to make big strides. And that's, I think, part of uh, maybe a theme we're building here with Everglades funding, it's incremental and it's not enough. Because from a, a scientific and ecological perspective, every year that we fail to fix the problem, the ecosystems that we depend on for our fisheries continue to decline. And they will get to a point where they will not recover. To give you an example, Chesapeake Bay, which is where I grew up as a kid, in the 70s was crashing. I mean, it's famous, right? Mm -hmm. It took them, once they started working on all this stuff, it took them 40 years until they got seagrass back to a level that they could say was similar to then. Wow. So the sooner that we engage in these difficult, not sexy, um, constant pressure, as Chris has said, on the policymakers, the sooner we're going to be able to fix the problems. And... I I guess I'm especially passionate just because I fish, <laughs> because I grew up on Chesapeake Bay. I saw this happen. Right. And we talked about this years ago. I, pre I can predict in every place what's going to happen next because it's not new. Tampa went through the same thing in the 70s, and they fixed themselves. And now they're kind of backsliding because of all these bigger nutrient issues. And we're starting to see 
in these estuaries what we call in the science world a phase shift. So if you're in, let's say, Charlotte Harbor, healthy place, it's based on uh, seagrass, oysters, clams, and that's what's cycling all the water and the nutrients and providing the food. And so it's a bottom-based ecosystem. Mm -hmm. With the loss of seagrass, what happens, and it happened in Chesapeake Bay, is all of a sudden all those nutrients are being cycled in the water column instead. And that's when you get the plankton blooms, the algae blooms. In uh, Chesapeake Bay, they got massive out, outbreaks of jellyfish. Mm -hmm. um, and what's happening in Charlotte Harbor now, and you can probably confirm this, there's more bait, sardines and herring and, and anchovies than people have ever seen. And that's because they're eating all that plankton, right? So for, it's great for them. It's mm -hmm. not so great for the bottom fish. And the concern from our perspective, you're like, okay, what? A lot of anchovies, tarpon love to eat them. But what, they're, what some of them are eating, especially the larger ones, like a threadfin herring, is they're eating zooplankton, which is animal plankton, which includes fish larvae. Right? So now mm -hmm. you've got this kind of wall of mouths that the fish larvae have to come through in the upper water column that they didn't used to. And so there's what we call secondary or more legacy effects. It just kind of starts to wow. snowball. I never thought about that. So all that the long way to say that the way that we get involved at this point is it's past the small stuff. Mm -hmm. We have to do exactly what Captain's is doing, BTT and TRSB. You've got to be loud. The squeaky wheel is, is what's going to get the grease. And before now, other groups were getting in the priorities. If we want to have a fishery in the future, we have to become the priority. Wow. I, 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 think, uh, I, I think learning to live better with water uh, is going to be a big thing in, in, in the future. And it's not just a Florida issue. It's, it's a um, you know, Mississippi River basin issue. It's pretty much every basin. We, you know, people like to live next to water. There's commerce next to water. There's economic opportunity next to water. People like, just like to be around the water. You know, you look at some of our largest population centers in this country, and it's all focused on water um, for various reasons. But the consequences of, of, of us wanting to have all of that hard infrastructure next to those waterways uh, is that we've imperiled those waterways. Uh, if we could figure out a way to, uh, to live with that water uh, and bring back some of the natural floodplain in, in some of these large basins, we can deal with some of the nutrient loading. You know, big agriculture does not have to be an enemy here. You know, mm -hmm. they're, they're going to have to be willing to give up some of the places they farm right now so we can get some of those buffer areas back. Uh, but um, but I, I think the idea that... that um, you know, living near water means that you're going to have water around your house sometimes. It's just going to have to become more acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we can't just erect a levee everywhere. We can't drain every wetland and expect uh, to have the, the ecological benefits that come out of those waterways. Yeah, yeah. That, that's absolutely right. And that's when it comes back to us. It comes back to everybody listening. If we're not paying attention and vocal, then we will not see progress. You, you know, you ask, it's like, what happens? Well, what happens if we get involved? Well, I can tell you what happens if you don't get involved. Nothing. And so if we expect to see change, it's going to be up to us to create it. You know, we, we see Tampa Bay. There's an issue just a few months ago where a gypsum stack at Piney Point leaked oh, yeah. and, and put a bunch of, of toxic water and nutrient water in, into Tampa Bay that no doubt is having an impact on that red tide now. That's something that, that wasn't a problem that just happened yesterday. It's been there for decades, but it wasn't being addressed because people were not 
loud. There was no political will. And it, history has proven um, that if people are involved, that is the single most thing that's going to drive action. And if we're not, then we're going to see more of the same. And I think that <laughs> it's pretty clear that that's unacceptable. But, yeah. but the cool thing about that is we have examples, as Chris said, of if you take action, you can have success. Yes. And I think, um, you know, we're talking a lot about the, the implications and what's wrong, but people can't get depressed with that. They, yes. have to, they have to realize that they've got a lot more power than probably than they think, mm-hmm. and there's a lot more people that think like them. Um, and so there, is, there are a lot of allies, and we know that, you know, Tampa recovered. Chesapeake Bay is, you know, helping to recover. Other places, Puget Sound's had problems. They've addressed septic, and they're recovering. So uh, nature can kind of fix itself if we give it a chance. So I think there should be uh, optimism out there. Yeah. It's just got to be, you have to be active in order for, to achieve that optimism. Yeah, I think that, you know, when you when you scroll Instagram or, or actually are in the Tampa area and you see the things that are going on right now, like a backhoe lifting up a dead Jewfish off the beach, I mean, that is a horrific image. And it, if nothing else, what we talked about and alluded to at the very beginning is that it takes these horrible situations to get people involved, and then the involvement is what actually makes the change if the thing that's going on in tampa has any benefit whatsoever it is to make sure that people never forget how bad that situation is right now it is really bad i feel terrible for those people that live there and make their living there and it's 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 an awful situation and if that doesn't get you involved i i have no idea what will um if that you know if you don't live in tampa maybe you live on the other side of the state it could that could be you one day and it is so important to get involved. And I, I just really am uh, very grateful and thankful for you guys to come onto the podcast and answer some of these questions that are somewhat elemental, but I think they're hugely important in, in letting people understand their role and their importance and their voice and how important that is and what, you know, it's one thing to, to be just screaming and shouting and being depressed and down and pointing fingers at the enemy, and I don't think that does any good. And I think that I, I really I, I move away from that, and that was one of the things that I saw about Captain's first thing that, I, that, that drew me to saying, you know, I like this organization. I like what's going on. First of all, you're fishing guys just like me. And it's, but secondly, there was no pointing a finger. There was no screaming and shouting, and that's just not getting anyone anywhere. And I understand it, man. People are pissed because this is why they moved to Florida. This is where they grew up. This is their heritage. This is where they went fishing with their grandfather. I, we all get it. Everybody's pissed, but the answer is not just being pissed and, and, and complaining and doing nothing. The answer is banding together, having some groups like you all um, organizing this voice, pointing it in the right direction, and actually making a, a difference. So yeah. I really appreciate everything that all of your organizations are doing and the other organizations that are not on the podcast today. I mean, there's plenty of them that are doing really good work. And thank you to them, too. Like, we need all the help we can get. We need everybody in, involved and in rowing the same direction, without a doubt. And um, we, we have seen it, it, people should be angry, but they should use that anger 
to drive passion, passion, and and to, and to drive an outcome. Right. Um, if if we have nothing but attention and advocacy for an issue, but no positive outcome on the back end of it, we're all going to lose. That's right. going to set a precedent yep. to policymakers that when there is a catastrophe, if we just sit back and stay quiet, eventually it'll subside and that that anger will subside, and 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 we don't have to do anything. But if we use that that spike, if we use that attention to drive progress to a, to a, a focused goal. Yeah. That sets the precedent that, that we course. need to address. These and it's things. also super important. Like, like, I don't know, the theme of this may be that, that horrible things create, create action and attention and stuff like that. But when things are good and this Tampa situation will get better and things will happen and people will start catching fish there again, and there will be no more dead fish on the beach at some point because of action or because of nature just does that or maybe there's a lot of rainfall or whatever happens, something will happen to where things are kind of a lot better than they are right now. That's when you don't take your foot off the gas on these things. That's when you don't say, oh, problem solved, because problem's not solved. You're teetering on the edge of it happening again at any moment. And if it doesn't happen over here, it could happen over here or down south or in the panhandle, it could happen anywhere. And so that's why I think even even when it's good, I think that might even be the most important time to really uh, try to try to get in front of people, try to educate people, try to recruit them into this kind of movement of being involved and being responsible with your own vote. Uh, and, and this is and it's not a political thing. It becomes a political thing in who is who is in favor of what you want. Right, whether that's a Democrat or Republican or an Independent, whatever it is, is that person going to lobby for the what you what's important to you? Like if you're a fisherman or a hunter, whatever. I mean, that's super important, and your vote is super super important, and you need to really look into it. And so there is a movement for fishermen and people in Florida to realize. I love the sign. It's like Democrat, Republican, water, right? right. Like that one, yeah. and it was a check for water, like. I don't care about the political affiliation. I want the person who is going to work for these solutions, right? Yep. And uh, I, I just always thought that was kind of, kind of a cool sign. Like that is the most important thing. And if you're not looking at the importance of water and 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 looking out for me, I'm not voting for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I think that's super important. But I thank thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast today, helping us out, you know, and and uh, educating people and really really. Keeping it, keeping it positive. And uh, Aaron, you you just said some beautiful things today as far as keeping it positive, and I appreciate it. And Chris, you've stayed that way, and uh, you know your your organization is, is certainly helping so much in the lobbying, and and I don't know where any of us would be without it. So that's a you're kind of an unsung hero in my opinion. I didn't know as much about your uh, organization as I've learned today, and I'm sure many other people are feeling the same way. So thanks for that, and uh, you know I would encourage anybody to to support all three of these organizations as well as the ones that that aren't on here too man they're helping support them absolutely thanks tom all right thank you thank you appreciate it see you